Welcome, all you adventurous readers, to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little-known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. So welcome to episode 7, The Weimar Twenties, where we look at uh, Alfred Durblin, the writer, the active activist and the family man. I'm Chris Godwin, your host, and I'm here with... Katie Kavanagh. Hello, everyone. It's lovely for you to join us today. Um, so we are three large topics today. So writer, activist, family man, all linked under Durblin. Uh, where do we start? In the 1920s? Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> slightly larger than the 1920s. It's the 12 years from 1919 to 1931 when the Dublin family was settled in the uh, bustling, noisy, crowded area of uh, eastern Berlin. Um, and it was really his most productive decade. Incredibly active, both in terms of uh, the literary output, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his uh, activism in various ways, which we'll mm -hmm. get into. And he had a growing family. So his reputation was really growing as well at this stage as a writer. He, his reputation was definitely growing, although uh, various people were a little bit suspicious of all these big epics. They didn't quite know how to, uh, how to handle them. And I have to say, sales were not especially good. The literary, you know, literary critics, perceptive critics, saw the power of his writing, mm -hmm. but the general public, who were fed on, uh, say, rather easier material, um, tended not to buy his books. And okay. that, towards, the end just... of the, towards the end of the decade, his publisher was tempted to stop his monthly stipend. Let's recap uh, then on yeah. the four big epics that were published during this time. Yes, yes. So we had the four epics. as Wallenstein, this huge epic of the Thirty Years' War back in 17th century Europe, mm -hmm. 900 pages, two volumes, didn't sell quite as well as The Three Leaps of Wang Lun. And that which, was in 1920? This was published, Wallenstein was published in 1920. Okay. And Wang Lun was still being reprinted at this time. I think it went through something like 16 printings up till uh, the early 20s. And then four years later, we had Mountains, Oceans, Giants, uh, this huge futuristic epic, mm -hmm. which almost caused Durblin to have a nervous breakdown. He was so, so the writing was so intense. Mm -hmm. Uh, three years after that, we had the uh, rather unique epic in verse called Manas, set in the Indian Himalaya, or a mythical Indian Himalaya. And a mere two years after that, uh, suddenly his only worldwide bestseller burst onto the scene. That was Berlin Alexanderplatz, um, which became recognised all around the world as being, you know, the big novel of the big city okay and it was you know as compared with uh, james joyce's ulysses and uh, and um dos pasos uh, manhattan transfer in america mm -hmm. kind of the three big novels which had suddenly seemed to you know recognize the big city the big modern industrial city as uh, a worthy object of literature hmm. but beyond these four epics we had huge amounts of other literary production. His, I mean, his journalism, which persisted throughout the decade, uh, where at the beginning he was uh, producing very 
kind of sharply polemical essays on political subjects in the turmoil of the early mm -hmm. Weimar years. Okay. Um, some of these he published under a pseudonym, which was called Linker Put, which is in Berlin dialect for left poor. He, he, uh, oh, okay. Right. So he was kind of sort of separating For out. I mean, it's very difficult to see in retrospect very much difference between material he produced as Alfred Dublin and material he produced as Linker Put. But he was very sharply polemical essays on uh, the, the political situation, cultural situation in the uh, early 20s. He was also doing theatre and book reviews. He had a, a very nice contract. Uh, with a publisher um, for the, the the Prague Tagblatt, the Prague Daily, um, to do theatre reviews of uh, what was going on in in, in the Berlin uh, cultural scene, and this mm. income from this was actually very useful during the hyperinflation at the uh, uh, the beginning of the twenties. So obviously, because he's <clears throat> writing reviews, that means he's going to the theatre a lot. Actually, going to the theatre, yes, mm. and he's. He's actually, um, you know, being able to discover, you know, one or two fairly sort of interesting names of up and coming uh, writers. Mm -hmm. But he uh, he was also, you know, he could be quite sort of critical of the, uh, mean, the standard theatre productions. Does this mean he had quite a good social life? So he was invited to parties and things like that in terms of being a critic and being kind of being around creative people. Well, he was and... very engaged. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, he, you know, he moved in a, a quite a... You know, quite a wide circle of mm -hmm. the, uh, the 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 active sort of avant-garde of of, of of literary society, mm -hmm. but he also was constantly pestered by editors uh, to provide a little bit of copy on sort of really quite trivial questions like uh, how do you organise your working day or you know <laughs> do you have a favourite place to do your writing you know, silly well, little I questions like, like those this. types of questions <laughs> that's exactly what I want to know uh, well exactly okay. newspaper readers enjoyed them as well yeah yeah so sometimes he'd dash off something in 10 minutes and uh, you know get it off his back okay. um, he also wrote three well wrote and produced three plays during the the decade there was uh, there was one called the nuns of Kemnada um which had its premiere in 1923. This was set in the Middle Ages, some rather feisty nuns in a battle with the local bishop or, uh, or something. And that seemed to go off without, uh, you know, without too many problems. Okay. But then uh, at the premiere in 1926 of his next play called Lusitania, do mm -hmm. you recognise this name? Is it the name of a ship? And what happened to this ship? Did it sink? Well, it did indeed, because it was <laughs> torpedoed by a German submarine. Oh, there we go. Then. <laughs> with lots of civilian casualties. I knew yeah. I recognised So this was a kind somewhere. of um, surrealist GCSE play on the, you know, the, uh, the, the bodies that had sunk to the bottom of the sea right. and uh, sort of talking to the fishes at the bottom of the sea and, okay. and so on. But the, the premiere uh, uh, was disrupted by Nazi hooligans, um, jeering and, uh, and shouting and, and so on. But uh, as one critic wrote in the newspaper, this interjection by these hooligans really made the evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that speaks volumes to the, of the quality of the play then. Yeah, it? well, but his, his next one so uh, suffered uh, deeply. In 1930, the premiere of a, a, a play called Marriage, The mm -hmm. Air, which he'd um, built up from uh, a, a sort of workshop at Bertolt Brecht's place with various yeah. people uh, battering ideas around about modern marriage but uh, the premiere in Munich was closed down by the police on the grounds that it was communist propaganda uh, so oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. yeah um, 
Oh, he also, uh, early, early on, he also wrote a, a, a kind of experimental screenplay. He was trying to think how the cinema might be able to use, you know, some sort of different techniques for switching between perspectives of different characters mm -hmm. or switching from one scene to another, um, rather than sort of rather plodding on in a kind of novelist, novelettish way, uh, you know, from one scene to scene, you know, just taking yeah. the audience with him very easily. Mm -hmm, he wanted mm -hmm. to try to see how you could get a modernist perspective into into cinematic uh, production. Okay. Um, and in the mid middle of the decade, um, there was a famous murder case where two girlfriends had conspired to murder the husband of one of them with poison. Mm -hmm. And this is and a he, real case. He wrote a an actual he wrote an actual book analyzing trying to work out motive this was Dublin the psychologist right as well as Dublin the the kind of the creative thinker uh -huh. and so on but he was trying to work out layers upon layers and upon layers of possible motivations and the interactions between the two and the interactions with their families and the uh, their um, their sexuality and so on and this was uh, you know, it's, it's a very interesting book and it, uh, you know, it was quite, you know, it was, it was very well received. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, then in the end of 1924, he spent two months travelling around Poland. And this was a very influential experience in his life. Because in, in 1912, uh, just as he was getting married with, uh, with Erna, they had agreed they had somehow formally um, uh, sort of resigned from the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. I, I've no idea how you went about resigning from it, but in fact they, they, they stepped away from the, any connection with Jewish religion. Mm -hmm. But uh, Alfred, by 1924, was getting quite concerned um, that he didn't know enough about the uh, the Jewish situation, mm -hmm. and there'd been some um, pogroms in in a nearby quarter of, of Berlin where the new immigrants tended to cluster. You know okay. the the worst housing and so on. So of course mm. it's very easy for the right wing thugs to say, "Oh, these incomers, they're taking your jobs. Let's go and show them a thing or two and, mm. and so on." So this was quite nasty. Mm. And he uh, some Zionists had suggested that Alfred might like to have a trip to uh, Palestine to have a look around. But he, he declined to do that. But uh, somebody then said, well, look, go and look around in Poland. Mm -hmm. Because in Poland, there are still kind of real living, breathing Jewish communities. A thriving community. Not, not just Jews who are becoming assimilated to, you know, a, a, a kind of standard German or Austrian or, or whatever okay. um, society. Yeah. So those two months in Poland were quite eye-opening to him, where he met... You know, people. You know, men who were extremely poor, mm -hmm. but had a, a, a superb kind of knowledge of, of 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 the history, the religion, the culture of their people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and did he still have? Did he have relatives in Poland? I'm not aware that he actually came across any relatives. No, I think that you know okay. his, his his relatives had all been part of the you know, mid nineteenth century migration okay, westward, okay. where right. they gradually became sort of assimilated into more or less into the local societies. Okay. Um, but there's the, another thing that happened to him on this Polish journey: the uh, the church in Krakow has a very famous altarpiece 
by a, 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 a medieval sculptor called Fotsteis. Um, and he would stand there gazing at this and trying to, you know, trying to sort of work out this, you know, this picture of the suffering man up on the uh, the cross, and 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 this had a, a a big impact on him. So there's the, the two the you know, the, the Jewish culture and a Christian imagery, both sort of working away in him in ways which would, um, you know, come to fruition later on in his life, which we'll get to in due course. Okay. Um, he'd also been writing little essays about natural philosophy about nature and 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 and, and the meaning of things he he eventually sort of you know looking reading into buddhism and and so on he'd developed this idea that everything in the world has a soul even inanimate matter like a you know a pebble on a beach yeah oh, sorry it um somehow it's soulful because it is matter which has been organized and brought together and organized in particular ways which uh, you know you can work out the laws by which the crystals formed and yeah. uh, and, and so on um and eventually uh, uh his publisher fisher um, agreed to publish a little collection of these essays in the same year that he published manas his his, his epic in verse of course both manas and this Flopped. Philosophical, they were dreadful <laughs> flops. Oh, and Fisher no. was extremely cross. And he said, "How on earth do you keep coming up with this stuff?" <laughs> and and was very minded to uh, uh, to stop his monthly stipend. But then, um, shortly after, he'd already started working on Berlin Alexanderplatz, mm -hmm. and uh, Fisher's wife had invited him along to their house to give a reading from his you know early early sections of uh, what he was writing for Alexanderplatz and. Yep. Uh, you know the Fisher family were, were very impressed with this new work that he was coming out with. So he had a little bit of respite. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. going to be cast Phew. into dire poverty immediately. <laughs> but on the other hand, he'd he'd also written uh, a, a, a little piece which was found in the archive after he died um, about his kind of you know the economics of writing. Mm -hmm. And he worked out that all through the the twenties until Berlin Alexanderplatz. He'd, he'd not even earned as much from all his numerous books as the the salary of a typical kind of a stenotypist. Yeah, so, so he was. It was a risky business writing then. Yes, as a, as a and, he, and and it's obviously not driven by purely commercial interest yeah. because you wouldn't be putting all your heart and soul into this literary creation uh, if you knew that you were going to uh, earn very paltry monetary rewards from it. Yeah, so he it was his hobby. He was enjoying it. Well, hob hobbies are a very weak way of looking well, at it. It was know, his life. He did have he another job, it. though, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. His actual job was... Well, he, he was, yes, he was, he was earning from his medical practice. Yes. Um, but his medical practice was also providing him with kind of direct contact with the real life of Berlin. With the subjects he wanted to write about. Yes, yeah. and the you know the, the the way that the the local people spoke and talk. He was he was a, a keen proponent of the the Berlin dialect, mm -hmm. and he said it was absolutely ridiculous that snobbish middle class Berliners looked down upon this wonderful, productive, expressive uh, 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 dialect. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned earlier about Dublin uh, as an activist and the political problems at the premieres of his plays. Um, how much was Alfred involved in the politics and public life in the 1920s? Um, 
Uh, well, at the, at the beginning of the 20s, he tried to find some sort of position within the, the various political parties that mm -hmm. he could agree with. He, he didn't want to join any sort of communist party. He was still mm -hmm. a bit, you know, he, he, you know he, was, he was pleased that the Russian Revolution had happened, mm -hmm. but he was still quite sceptical about uh, joining a party which wanted everybody to be a mass movement mm -hmm. all led, you know, in one particular direction. And he, he was, was keen to too have individualistic. a voice keen to have a voice and that's why he was writing yes, as Linka yes. Put. Um, so he, I, I think he was a member of the SPD, the, uh, the, the Socialist Party, which was the, the, the biggest party in the Reichstag and, and the governing party basically. But mm -hmm. the, uh, I mean, the SPD politicians after the war, um, you know, found themselves very seriously constrained by the military still. This defeated military had come back from the war and the uh, the suppression of the workers' uprising in the east of Berlin in the spring of 1919, where the the government was actually using uh, artillery and 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 um, bombing aeroplanes and and so on uh, to uh, to suppress this uprising. And Dublin's mm. own sister was killed by shrapnel yeah. uh, when she went to try to get milk for her. We children. spoke about that in a previous spoke episode. About that in a previous didn't we? episode. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was pretty. Uh, um, disillusioned with the, the, the established political parties by, mm -hmm. this, uh, by this stage. Um, but he was, uh, he, he was very keen to kind of protect the position of writers able to express themselves freely on various matters to do with the, you know, the state, the politics, um, culture, life, mm -hmm. um, and so on. So in... Uh, so he, he first of all he joined there was a, there were various kind of organizations setting up there was one which uh well the, the acronym was SDS which was really for the Society for the Protection of German Writers so he joined that in 1920 and actually became its president in 1924 and it was uh, sort of standing alongside a rather more cliqueish union of german novelists mm -hmm. and there was also a rather snobbish Pen Club, P-E-N in capital letters, which is a big kind of international organisation for for writers, fairly sort of establishment kind of uh, okay. organisation. Um, and then in 1925, he co-founded um, what he called the Group 25, trying to bring together all the kind of the left-leaning um, writers. But then three years later, the communists quit that because it was the new kind of international communist line that um, um, bourgeois leftists are our big enemy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't be diverted from the path of global revolution by these, uh, uh, by these bourgeois people. So, uh, that, you know, there was a big schism between the communists and the non-communist leftists. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in 1926 and onwards, the, the government was trying to bring in new laws about censorship and much as today we have the would-be censors bringing in censorship on the grounds of we must protect the children. Mm -hmm. This was about protecting youngsters from smutty literature. Mm -hmm. uh, but the actual law itself would have meant suppressing an awful lot of uh, kind of free expression on, uh, on, on, on matters generally. So, you know, for some years, uh, Dublin and others were agitating against this kind of state control over the freedom of, uh, mm. of expression. It is important though, Chris, that we are, you know, protecting the children from content that's not... Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dublin 
Dublin himself agreed that, you know, we do need to be careful about, um, uh, you know, matters to do with the, the upbringing of children. Yeah, but yeah. don't use that as an excuse to suppress freedom of expression in matters that the state should really not be having any any kind of control over. Got you, yeah. But then in uh, 1928, he was elected to the new uh, section of the Prussian Academy, which had been set up as the uh, the section for, it was called Kriftkunst, uh, right? So writing arts, mm -hmm. which was a, a very kind of mealy-mouthed um, way. It wasn't saying literature. Um, it wasn't talking about uh, sort of journalism or scribbling or something. They called it uh, literary uh, writing arts. Mm -hmm. But this provided um, Dublin with a really a major new pulpit that he could use. And it, I mean, he immediately leapt into action and says, "Look, what we what we need is to build better bridges between the academy and the universities, mm -hmm. because at the moment the universities think they know everything there is to know about Goethe mm -hmm. from a, you know a hundred uh, hundred and." 20 years earlier, mm. um, but they never have any contact with the young writers of today. Mm -hmm. So uh, they set up a lecture series and in December of uh, uh, 1928, Dublin himself gave a lecture to over a thousand people in the big auditorium of Berlin uh, University um, about the construction of the epic work. Which a very, uh, a very powerful and uh, sort of influential piece of um, of, uh, of theoretical, you know, literary theory. Mm. That's really interesting, isn't it? That he was really, um, you know, he wanted to encourage. That's what I get from that, you know, encourage young writers coming through. Oh, yes. and and he was on various committees, prize committees, and so on, where mm. he would he would be advocating for sort of some, you know, sort of up and coming writer who seemed to have. Um, talent. Mm. I mean, you know, quite often, you know, the, those recipients wouldn't particularly develop into major, yeah. major figures. But he was he was looking around for, uh, you know, for yeah. the young talent. So he's not he's not a recluse writing, and then hiding no, absolutely in his surgery. Not. And he was he practice. was very hostile to the 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 very elitist uh, school of uh, Stefan Georg, who. Uh, produced an extremely elitist um, literary magazine mm -hmm. whose circulation was restricted only to those who deserved to re oh, <laughs> receive no. it. You know, very elitist. And it had quite, a, quite a little clique of, of, of young male <laughs> acolytes around if your this. Your name's uh, not down, you're not coming in. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he absolutely the opposite of that. And uh, another thing he was concerned about was that the the readers that were used in German schools mm -hmm. for teaching about German German literature yeah. and so on were incredibly out of date. Mm. You know, as if they'd got stuck in the middle of the 19th century, mm -hmm. you know, before these major wars, before Germany was unified, before the cities began, you know, growing beyond all bounds and yeah. so on. And, you know, giving a completely kind of false mental perspective for... Yeah. Um, for German school kids. As is often the way education, kind of in terms of funding, drops off the edge. Funding what? Well, funding for equipment and new things like that, certainly. No, right, okay, uh, okay. But... Uh, you know, if they're not funding for new readers, then... Well, yes, but that's not a, it's not a funding issue, it's a, it's a mentality issue. Okay. 
yeah because the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 kind of the the elites of the the prussian state mm. um wanted to cling on to a very conservative um political and social setup mm. which was being sort of undermined by these enormous pressures of uh, industrialization and urbanization and mm. uh, and um um subversive propaganda mm. and, and so on so they wanted to kind of keep the school as a kind of stable conservative center okay yeah um the other thing he did was uh, he was very engaged with radio which only began i mean broadcasting only began in sort of the mid 20s mm -hmm. but Dublin was quite uh, uh, you know uh, quite an early user of this 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 new medium so he had his, his first radio broadcast in November of 1925 mm -hmm. and then uh, in uh, in 1929 um, they, uh, Alfred and his second son Wolfgang mm -hmm. actually had a little discussion on radio about the topic of God Oh. Which is quite daring. You no, know, he would yeah. definitely be all over podcasting then, wouldn't he? He would oh, love yes. that. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, in, in December of 1929, um, a group of Dublin was among a group of writers who were allowed to have the first ever scriptless broadcast. And if you remember in the early days of radio, mm. you know, the radio presenters had to be dressed in dinner suits. Yes. And, uh, and absolutely you could not possibly have a phone-in program because people might say the wrong thing yes <laughs> if he was this is an interesting question for you chris if he was uh doing a podcast today what do you think it would be about oh he could be doing 10 different podcasts i would think <laughs> <laughs> do you think he would have other writers a different writer each each episode he'd be, he'd be very happy to uh, mm. to, to have dialogues with uh, with different writers yes i mean he he would have loved this medium mm. he would have been able to engage you know because he he was he was very good at at at, at kind of conversing and um expressing his very sort of uh, trenchant views about uh, various issues and making jokes mm. And using kind of native Berlin wit to mm -hmm. uh, to you know talk about uh, various issues, he'd have loved this medium. Mm. Yes, very good. I digress. Carry yeah. on. <laughs> um, right. So, uh, we, we so were... what have we done? We've done okay. So that was we've Dublin pretty much activist. covered him. Yeah. him so as what was the what about the family life? Yeah. Oh no, sorry, that was as the activist. So we've done we've done Dublin the writer. We've covered Derblin the activist. Yeah. That was, that's quite a serious conversation. And now we're on to Derblin the family man. Yes. So would, would you like to know something about the housing situation of Berlin at this time? Yes, please. Right. The, the apartment they moved into was on one of the main streets in the, the east of Berlin, very busy traffic street. Mm -hmm. um, it was on the ground floor of a seven-storey block. Mm-hmm which was the front portion of an enormous kind of wodge of seven-storey blocks going back two or three courtyards, mm -hmm. uh, which were a result of um, very um, meticulous planning by the Prussian state government. This was even, even before Germany was unified. The Prussian mm -hmm. government was worried by the uh, huge numbers of people coming into Berlin. And so they set up a general building plan uh, where they, you know, said that, you know, the buildings should be no more than seven storeys high and so on. Uh, but apart from that, they left it up to the developer. 
Okay. And they assume that the developer would be providing amenities like little little areas with trees and grass and, and so on and places for people to stroll. And of course, the developers like didn't. Okay. They, 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 they filled up as much as they could with, with masonry. And the only open spaces were courtyards, which were just big enough for the horse-drawn fire engines to turn around in. OK. Right. So... And, and the other thing, of course, is that it was the, the front block was the posh mm-hmm. apartments yeah you know with kind of apartments of several rooms mm-hmm. with all the normal amenities of sort of gas gas and uh, indoor plumbing and so on the rear blocks were formed of kind of single rooms mm. which you know could probably you know be subdivided with plywood and so on but i mean basically it was a single room where you might have anything between five and twenty people living in that Gosh, same space so a a very um, busy tenement, packed out. Oh, packed out, and uh, you, know, you know the population was still increasing yeah. all the time during the twenties. So yes, a dreadful situation. Mm. And of course, they didn't have indoor plumbing. Oh no! And these so, like, bureaucrats, hygiene. these bureaucrats, had worked out very precisely mathematically how many toilets they needed <laughs> for each staircase. Uh, you know, these are, these are toilets out in the courtyard, yeah. you see, right? How many do they need for each staircase? And so, okay. and they'd worked out. You know, people were complaining, there's, you know, there aren't enough toilets. Yeah. Right? No, 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 we've worked it out. Because most of the men are away somewhere during the day working, so they can... So was it also uh, a hotbed for disease and... Oh, dreadful disease, illness. yes. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, TB was mm-hmm. rampant. Um, um, uh, uh, venereal diseases were rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, childhood death. You know, and, and uh, uh, you know, mortality around childbirth was very high. Yeah, and yeah, awful, awful hotbeds of disease. Yes, Ooh. yeah. So uh, you know, as one one sort of modern writer puts it, they'd um, this 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 Prussian building plan was brilliant, meticulous, all encompassing, and fundamentally flawed. It turned Athens on the spree to Europe's biggest working-class slum. But this was the milieu in which the Doblin family were living throughout the the nineteen twenties. Mm. And we have a we have an exp- we have a description of um, you know the Doblin setup yeah. from um, Yola Niklas, his uh, his young lady friend. Uh-huh. Um, so, so it's a working-class district in a very plain but not poor-looking tenement building on the ground floor. Some steps on the right behind the front door led to the entrance to their living quarters. Then, in the afternoons, his consulting hours, uh, the entrance door, which led directly to the waiting room, always stood open. Apart from two long brown benches, the room was completely bare, for anything not nailed down was quickly stripped. <laughs> Does that mean, as in... So stolen, Thieved, stolen away. Stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got you. Yeah. Okay, so um, we've kind of gone over what what a, a typical sorry a typical tenement building would would be like in Berlin. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? Uh, well, I mean, how how do you think Erna was was managing in this uh, in this environment? I mean, I imagine she was hating it if she's. If it's like squalid and well, their but... front apartment is not squalid. No, and they're okay. you know they're on a they're on a busy main road. Yes, but it's uh, 
you know, as Yola said, it was not a not a poor looking tenement building. I mean, some of their um, uh, somebody actually went around to find out what sort of neighbours the Durblins had when they were living there, going through um, records, uh, and and they found that you know there was a there was a headmaster, there was a dealer in um, songbirds, uh, there was uh, a lawyer, and so on. But then in the in the back tenements these smaller rooms you'd have lots and lots of sort of transients have people mm -hmm. working on the trams or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or you know people um people doing uh, so i guess you know the hustle and work, bustle but... it's kind of never a dull moment then yeah and she's got lots of people that she could talk to i'm assuming would she if yeah, she's well, kind I've, of the center of the pro one of the problems we have is that 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 we never hear erna's voice mm. there are no letters that we know of from from erna to anybody mm. um we have various reactions to Erna or descriptions of Erna yeah. from friends of Alfred, mm -hmm. who, you know, might not necessarily be the most neutral of uh, mm. of, of of witnesses. It's sad, uh, but that she there's... was. Uh, but I mean, she was working to look after the family. Yeah, she... it's sad that there's not more kind of. I bet, I bet there are some really great tales kind of around around her. Yeah, and well, I mean, we she was she was that. looking after the household. She was looking after the household budget. Mm -hmm. Because Alfred was far too busy with his writing and his activism to be, you know, to be bothered. Yeah, I've got petty to say, details he's probably, of, uh, he does sound yeah. like a little bit like an absentee parent there. <laughs> yeah, well, he, no, he was he was engaged with his children. I mean, yeah. There were several delightful photos that Yola Nicholas took okay. of, uh, of, of just busy uh, Alfred engaging with the children. Yeah. They, they looked like lovely children, you know, curly curly headed and smiling and so yeah, on. Yeah, it so, was a yeah. different it was a different time. Yeah. But I mean, Erna was very practical, but, uh, you know, she was the same sort of mould as, as his mother, Sophie, you mm -hmm. know, who'd uh, brought the children through this uh, awful yes. um, period after she was just left with all the debts of her husband yeah. after he'd run away. And, uh, you know, it took years to pay off all those debts. Um, and Erna would, t would type up all of Alfred's manuscripts. She insisted that she should do the typing. But then Alfred would say, oh, but she doesn't actually understand what what I've written so you know there was obviously some a little bit of friction Tension. friction there between uh, you know the the creative uh, well it's, it's replicating the father the, you know his father's generation where he had that creative man forced into a situation where he's got to have a head for business yeah and, uh, and, and for practical matters and it got too much for him and he just ran away mm. but Alfred's decided he's not going to run away so they just carry on as best they can. And in fact, uh, at the time she was pregnant with their fourth son mm -hmm. in 1926, there were pictures of them strolling along a promenade in Nice, mm -hmm. where they'd, they'd gone to the south of France for a summer holiday. And uh, they just, you know, it's sort of the picture taken by one of those, um, you know, beach photographers, you know, right. a costume. So, but, yeah. uh, you know, they're looking all, you know, sort of quite jolly. Okay. Yeah. Good, good. So, Chris, obviously, um, Sophie. Uh, Alfred's mother was living in Berlin as well. Were they all living together? They, they, they weren't actually in the same apartment. Okay. But they, uh, she was just within a few, you know, a few doors of um, Alfred's apartment. Okay. So and Alfred's, it was easy, you know, it was easy to do visits. And, and Alfred's so. brothers and sisters, were they all, all within Berlin? Uh, no. Um, I mean, Hugo the actor was, was living in Cologne. 
mm-hmm. at the time. Um, the others I, I don't really know much about, but uh, I mean, I think the timber business that Sophie's brothers had set up, I think mm-hmm. that was still carrying on. And uh, Alfred's older brother had gone into that timber business okay. with them. Yeah. Um, but they were, yeah, they were, they, they were, they were all sort of fairly close within the same district. Okay. Right. But I mean, Sophie, Sophie's life had become a bit easier from I think it was 1908 her older brother died and left all his estate to her and so she was at last able to pay off all the debts that she'd been left by the her runaway husband got you yeah um and she um she actually died in 1920 I mean she was very she was very ill and arthritic and whatnot at the at the end very very sad case Mm. and what happened to Alfred's father in the end well he he eventually sort of you know he went back to Hamburg and uh, lived with his young lady friend, uh, well not so young by now, um, in, in Hamburg uh, to the very end. He, uh, he died a year after Sophie in 1921 and the only person attending his funeral was Alfred's older brother. Oh that is sad, so it was a lingering you know trauma for the family then yeah, so I suppose the question comes, you know, was was Alfred eventually able to emerge from that mm. trauma to some kind of balanced yeah. view? And in fact, the answer is yes. Okay. Right? But he did it happened. in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. Because in, in 1928, there were various kind of celebrations being organised for his 50th birthday. He was already famous enough, even before Alexander Platz, for mm-hmm. his 50th birthday in 1928 to be a big kind of literary occasion. Okay. Um and a, a, a friend of his, a poet called Oscar Lurker, who was a, a reader for Fisher, um, had some discussions with him early on. They decided, oh, we'll put a little book together. Half of it will be Alfred doing some kind of autobiographical things. Okay. And the other half would be Oscar Lurker going over his literary career up till that point in right. 1928 so it's a autobi- delightful little book an autobiography then. it's a delightful little book it's really really nicely put together but the the autobiographical materials that mm-hmm. alfred assembled for this were quite extraordinary very very artful mm-hmm. in a way playful but in terms of what we were just talking about his uh, you know the trauma of his parents and the you know his father running away and mm-hmm. so on um he looks back at this period and writes a, you know, quite a kind of a scathing piece, you yeah. know, blaming his father for everything. But then there's a kind of a, there's a, a kind of inquiry panel looking over his shoulder yeah. um, and saying, oh, uh, we think you can do better than that. Can you try again? Uh-huh. And so he writes a second version where he's beginning grudgingly to see that you know, Max, if Max had been allowed to sort of bloom in his proper environment, he would have been a, you know, a very delightful and creative fellow. Oh, so he's but still, to... he ran away and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Sort of and then this committee of inquiry looks over his shoulder again and says, mm, OK, you're making progress, but you really should try again. Mm. And he writes a third time, um, quite a longer piece, where he comes at a very good, balanced judgment of this human situation mm. and yeah. the, I guess he doesn't have to worry about offending anyone it's all on him isn't it because you know his mother's passed away his father is, has passed away so 
he's got to come to terms with his own monkeys on his back. Yes, yes. But this, uh, you know, this very kind of artful, this three-stage yeah. thing where, you know, he he knows he has to be fairer to his father about mm. the situation because his father wasn't in control uh, of, of the whole situation. Mm. He was, you know, he, he just couldn't stand his artistic uh, talents being suppressed mm. by this kind of um, earn money um, attitude of the, you know, the, the, the wife's family. Well, you've got to but, survive. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to earn the money. Yeah. Everyone's got to earn something. Yeah, so... Uh, okay, and so... Um, uh, very sad. So he was finally able to liberate himself from his bad memories, then. We can hopefully say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, Yola Niklas. Did you want to touch on who she was? Yeah, we, I mean, we really can't sort of leave her out of the picture entirely because she, you know, quite definitely influenced his writing. Because there are, there are two characters in particular, uh, one in Mountains, Oceans, Giants, mm. and one in Manas, mm. which I think he would have been incapable of creating mm. these two female characters mm -hmm. had he not met Yola. We haven't talked about um, their meeting. Um, so as I understand it, I know we, we've had conversations yeah. about it. When they met at a party and they kind of connect, they hit it off straight away. Yes. Um, so a, a meeting of minds. Um, and she also would look after their children. Is that right? Well, I mean, one, you know, Erna insisted that she should be introduced to Yola. Yeah. Um, I'm not, it's not clear at what point Erna realised there was a kind of, uh, you know, sexual element to this friendship right um but uh, you know she must have known it at some yeah, point yeah she would have she would have but known. she insisted on oh, on being cool. introduced to yola so yeah. yola was introduced to the family she was a great favorite with the children mm -hmm. she took some delightful photographs of mm -hmm. uh, of, 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 of of the children and uh, in 1925 she was invited to join them the family on a on a houseboat along uh, you know some little back creeks in a wetland mm. just near 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 Berlin. And so as a Yola was very creative herself so she was, she was a, a photographer. photographer. Yes. Um she was she was working on the margins of the Berlin film industry doing publicity stills and things from for you know directors like mm -hmm. Fritz Lang. So, so I imagine they had a very similar um interest in, in the same people and similar friends and things like that. Uh uh, well, she yes, I mean she she was actually introduced by a well-known actor, Alexander Granach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you know they, they 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 coincided a little bit, yeah. But I think it was just the fact that she was interested in his creative works in a way that he felt Erna wasn't mm -hmm. interested in his creative works. And it's always flattering when someone is interested in what you're doing. Well, especially if, if she's pretty isn't. and half your age. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, and then so uh, we know then um, that Erna. Um, what? Well, tell me what happened. At, at well, as I say, we you know we, we we only have very partial accounts of this, and we never hear Erna's own voice, mm. and so it's a very delicate matter to get into because the mm. I'd say if you if you're only hearing from uh, mm. you know from 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 you know, participants who've got their own mm -hmm. 
motives and, and so, so on. Yola yeah. remained a friend within the family until until the end? No, <clears throat> no. <clears throat> Anna, <clears throat> eventually, so in the, in the latter half of the 20s, she, she did become incredibly jealous and uh, made it very clear that she didn't want to um, know anything more about Yola and mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Alfred should not have any contact with her because yeah. she couldn't she couldn't entirely prevent um any more contact mm. but i mean <coughs> but we'll, uh, we'll find out age... in later in later episodes after, you know when they're in yeah. exile um how the uh, okay. you know, how things went on okay and then so derblin as as the family man was committed to erna he he took a deliberate decision family. he was not going to repeat the max episode the events from his father yes. yeah so he yeah so he committed to stay with the family mm -hmm. even though you know he was he was you know pretty much torn but he wasn't going to sacrifice his growing family of four sons mm -hmm. um for his um, you know his own selfish purposes shall we say okay um Shall we touch on Berlin Alexanderplatz as a bestseller? Yeah, we'll, well, we'll be doing an entire episode on that uh, okay. uh, later on. And so, uh, obviously, that unexpected success after Manas and the... Um, yeah, the the, the other bit philosophical one, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, um, how did yeah. that affect the family then? Suddenly, everything... Would they have had, you know, bigger income from that? Well, um, I mean... This was uh, yeah, more success. Such a huge success. We had, um, yeah. I mean, w within a year, you had you know, translation into several other languages, um, especially English, American English, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, French and Spanish and Swedish and Hungarian and Czech and so you know, d d translations oh, wow. going on all over the place. Fantastic. Uh, so it was a worldwide hit. I mean, uh, I, Dublin was annoyed um, that people were saying, oh, he's kind of copying Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses, okay. uh, which he wasn't at all because, I mean, he'd only read... Uh, Ulysses was only translated into German mm -hmm. when he was already halfway through Berlin, mm -hmm. Alexanderplatz. Mm -hmm. So he read it fairly late on and gave a, a very positive mm -hmm. review of it. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I mean, I think I think we we are running on a bit, and we're going to be dealing with uh, the uh, Alexander Platz in a later episode. So, perhaps you say the most the most practical thing was that they could now afford to move to a better location. Okay, that's good. And Erna was actually quite insistent that uh, you know they'd had twelve years in this very smoky, noisy, dusty yeah. environment, crowded environment. Time to upgrade. Let's go to a let's go to a leafier place. Yeah, great. Um, and also, I mean, another another trigger for this was the fact that some regulations about uh, these kind of you know one man medical practices meant that Dublin was about to lose half his income from the insurance companies that covered the the patient fees. Okay. And so you know he was. He, so his know, practice was in decline. Practically, then. his practice was in in decline. Oh, okay. Even in 1931. Okay. So in 1931, they moved out to the uh, to the west of of berlin but uh oh another little disappointment connected with this even though some america some uh, berlin newspapers had been uh, 
suggesting that it was time Alfred Dublin got the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. Two weeks after Alexander Platz was published, Thomas Mann was awarded the Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I imagine, you know, you you have to, there has to have been some kind of, uh, like a long time if it's only two weeks and then oh oh yeah you yeah know, obviously yeah but no I mean, people have been suggesting it you know for a few years already oh, okay but the i mean the thing about the award to thomas mann was that they made it expressly for the his first novel which was published in like 1900 oh and they had ignored his later uh, his later work so thomas mann was a bit miffed oh, oh okay <laughs> so they're both miffed interesting yeah. all right yeah. we've covered a lot of detail today i know you've yes. done a lot of talking um, I wonder if it's time for our reading. Um, okay, um, I thought what I'd select is a, 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 a radio broadcast that um, Dublin gave in April 1930, where he was asked to speak about his life. Mm-hmm. <coughs> the uh, the manuscript um, is incomplete. It was discovered in the archive. There's obviously some pages missing from the beginning, and apparently. This radio broadcast aroused quite a bit of controversy within the family, and they thought that he'd said things that he shouldn't have said. Ooh! But that's not clear from the pages that still exist. Love a bit of from the archive. Okay. So, <clears throat> Do you think it was redacted for the archive then? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, you know, <gasps> you know such enormous amounts of paper. Okay. I mean, it's, it's not it's not strange that some pages might have gone missing. Okay. Fair but enough, there may well enough. be some some bits of this radio broadcast that we're not now privileged to know, you know, Got the contents. You. Okay. Right. So this is Alfred Derblin speaking about his life in April 1930 on Radio Berlin. So all of my scribbling has always been an unending striving to stay on the heels of insights. Over the years, I've written several books. No book is complete. Even though I'm a member of the Academy of Arts, I dispute whether my books have anything to do with art in today's sense. I I don't denigrate art. All I assert is that I've always had an aversion, a distaste for the arts. My intellectual activity serves other things. It's a constant process of reflection, an uninterrupted and serious conversation about truth, engaging with and working through what I see and experience, and my stance towards it, either affirming or rejecting. A person can think in different ways. We use the word think only for logical and abstract activity. But in my view, you can also think in sounds, musically, or in stone, sculpturally, or in buildings, architectonically, and also in products of the imagination. These are different modes, in part, they're stages of thought, and each stage has its truth, and just as contact with abstract truth, with some perception, gladdens and nurtures, just so does contact with the truth and order of music and literature. I won't go into detail of how I had to struggle when at first I had no medical practice of my own. For half the day I was assistant doctor, I stood in for colleagues, on duty day and night at the emergency room, economically an endless tacking with a pretty strong wind constantly whistling about my ears. That's part of existence. No one gets anything handed to him on a plate, and we're not here to live as rentiers. 
But to say something about the character of my labours, my thinking, my toil of an intellectual kind, belongs explicitly or implicitly to Berlin. It is from here that it has acquired and still acquires its decisive influences, its direction. I grew up in this great, stern, sober Berlin. It's the mother ground. This stone ocean is the mother ground of all my thoughts. It's the most perfidious thing in Germany to have people curse Berlin, its depravity, its squalor or whatever. Berlin does have its pleasure quarters, a good part of them meant for visitors. But if you're going to talk about a house, you don't just look at a side room or inspect a rubbish bin. I only know that this town, where people dwell in the worst tenement slums in the world, know almost nothing but work, work, work. That here only work has a good conscience and never any pleasure. And anyone who doesn't know this does not know Berlin and has nothing to say about our city. These tenement slums and factories have for decades provided the material for my vision and my thoughts. And if ever I spoke of China or India or Greenland, I was always speaking of Berlin, of this great, strong, sober Berlin that only a real man can love. This Berlin with its own fabulously expressive vernacular, of which, ridiculously enough, its own educated citizens are ashamed. And if you ask me what themes I have chosen and extracted from this stony ground, it is these. I saw how here the individual disappears, how here the only active and suffering masses, the great collective, a mass of people in a revolutionary movement to shrug off its distress. That was the theme of my first book from before the war. The war came. I was in Lorraine at an army fever hospital. I pondered and wrote another book about the iron forces of war and how can it be possible to arrive at non-violence and true order. Back in Berlin, amid all the, the old walls, I saw the social struggles and described what technology and industry do to people and how they change from being tools for people to tyrants over humanity. Then, in the book before last, I chose an Indian milieu, the theme was already very active. The book declared that we need to clean up, to break through all the old clutter. In my most recent book, I was openly back in Berlin. It had been a long journey. I'm back home, but the journey is not yet ended. Earlier, I quoted the saying, a child's education should end before birth. Because a life consists in living through to the end its own birth dowry, its inheritance, but also doing what it has to do in order to let its future unfold of its own accord. You have to gain clarity about yourself and the things around you, and this is the task of every individual that no one can take away. And so I'm not afraid to reject allegiance to all today's slogans and programmes and do not run with any crowd. It's always been enough for me to stand on my own two legs. A serious person is never spared a little loneliness. I have to say this in an era that abuses very good words about the collective, about the masses that form society. They say collective, but it's a mob that's been rounded up by drumbeats and soon disintegrates. Gatherings of people are necessary for all kinds of purposes and activities, but autonomy is no less necessary.
I have nothing more to say just now about my life. It doesn't contain much external action, but thinking and shaping, especially ongoing thinking, is certainly one kind of action. And thus I conclude this report of my life with the self-evident remark that I may have been alive for a long time already, but only begin to exist from this moment on. Ah, oh, lovely. It's like a love letter. It's a love affair with Berlin. Yes, and it's so nice to have somebody being authentically to support an important component of society mm. that all the good thinkers despise and deride. Mm. He he is 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 talking about all of it, isn't yes. he? Not just a little bit. Yes, yeah. but uh, when we come to the, do the Berlin Alexanderplatz uh, episode, we'll have some interesting things to say about the Nose reader response when it was serialised in a newspaper. There's some very, very interesting reactions. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess when he said, what was it he said? Oh, hang on. I'm to turn, turn the... Where it's like, it's the most perfidious thing in Germany to have people curse Berlin. It's depravity, it's squalor. Hmm. Yeah, but if if that's that's only the the surface, yeah. And he he was always trying to dig below the surface. Yeah. What is the reality of a lived life? What is the reality of a of the social mechanism beneath this tawdry, crowded, dirty surface? Mm. Yeah. And a lot of that's a lot of the the uh, the really detailed content within his epics. Yes, isn't it? Yes, digging beneath the surface. Digging this was his, his mission. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I brought to mind, is it in Wallenstein? I'm not sure. The passage about the mosquitoes. Is that Wallenstein? Yes. Oh, yeah. look at me. I, how great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm learning things. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. I think it's time to say goodbye. Okay. I think that was a fairly meaty episode. <laughs> it was a long episode. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're very real here. I'm not going to edit this episode down as much as, as previous episodes. And you may have heard there was a rattling halfway through your reading. I don't know, Chris, if you were aware of it. But it oh, was... this is my <laughs> dog who rattles her ears very yeah. noisily. <laughs> Chris has a very lanky greyhound. And she did a big stretch and <laughs> rattled her ears and then mm. flopped back down again. <laughs> um, so it's good. I think that that makes it a bit more real for us. So yes, I've decided yeah. actually that um, Derblin would approve of things like that because that's yes. the meaty everyday, you know, it's digging beneath the surface. So we should keep it in. Uh, uh, right. Good. Yes. Good. OK, well, goodbye, everyone. And uh, we'll be back with another episode very shortly. Excellent. Goodbye from me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Derblin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Derblin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading! <laughs>